please to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. And again, for those of you that don't really know me, starting early doesn't mean getting out early. So if this is early for you, it doesn't work like that. Just uh, those that have ears to hear. And your pastor's a nice guy. I'm not. So when I'm ministering and people are pressing me to stop, what do I do? Keep going. Yeah. So if if you're in a hurry to go somewhere, stay calm and it'll be okay. But since I'm here to serve God and not you, your desires mean nothing to me when it comes to ministering the word. I'm going to do what he says for me to do. And uh, so, fair warning. Hallelujah. So, since uh, just to kind of give you a good start on this, I'm going to read about half a chapter. Ready? First Corinthians 10 verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For that drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Now, Notice how many times the word all is there. It's there. One, two, three, four, five. No, six. All our fathers, all passed through the sea, all were baptized, all eat, did eat the same spiritual drink, all did, or same spiritual meat, all did drink the same spiritual drink. All. Everybody had the same experience. Verse five. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So, they and their ascendants, (laughs) their parents and grandparents or whatever, they had been in Egypt approximately 400 years, Four. 30, 460, somewhere in there. I don't remember exactly. And so they all had that same experience. And they all had the same experience of deliverance from Egypt. They all did. But in the wilderness, after no longer being slaves because they'd been delivered, many of them never made it to the promised land because... The Lord was not pleased with them. Verse 6. Now these things were our examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things. And here's five things. We should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. That was the general category. Here it is. Neither be your idolaters as were some of them as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's idolatry, according to this. 
They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples. Greek word translated ensample here is exactly the same Greek word translated example in verse 6. And they were written for our admonition. Here's the address of the letter. Upon whom the ends of the world are come. So while all of this applied to the early church. It wasn't addressed to the early church. It was addressed to those people who would be living in the period of time that all of this would be culminated, brought to a close. So I'm sure the Corinthians were benefited by this. It's the word of God after all. and it, There's an application here to them and everybody that's lived from then to now. But there is a specific generation that is the generation upon whom the ends of the world are coming. And the Greek there, word there for world is not cosmos or the word that, 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 that is the system of things. It's not the word for planet earth. Earth is not going to explode and go away. This word world is eon or an age and it describes everything that has characteristics of that society of that world of that uh, of, of all of this everything that's considered not of god didn't originate with god is not empowered by god is not overseen by god that is eon and this age is coming to an end And so all of these things I read to you about are written for our examples, for our learning. In other words, there's supposed to be a direct message to us that we would take and personalize and accept as a message to us and make a decision what our response to that's going to be. Now, I know the pastor says he's not a student of end-time events, and so we're all, all of us are pretty normal, and it, you're going to avoid preaching about things that you don't have confident knowledge of. But I have spent my entire life Planning to go with the rapture. And so we're going to talk about the end of this age and what that means to you and I. I'll read two more verses. Verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth. 
Take heed lest he fall. I go to church faithfully. I pay my tithes. I, I'm, I'm separated. I obey my, the pastor. That's not what this is saying. That's not going to get you to heaven. That, that doesn't even fulfill the qualifications of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 16 that if you're faithful with your finances, that's the least level of faithfulness. So all of those things are the least level of faithfulness. That's what you do when you first get in. That's no indication of growth, no indication of maturity, no indication you're growing in God. And if you think getting in and acting like that and staying like that is going to get you to heaven... It's not happening. You're not going. If you've been around here for X number of years and you're still focusing on just being faithful to church, paying your tithes, being separated, and obeying the pastor, all those things, all those things are in the book. But they're what babies do, not the spiritually mature. And if you're still measuring yourself by that standard, I want to see book, chapter, and verse. Because if you can't show me that book, chapter, and verse, you're not going to be saved. Because it's not going to be Antioch, the Apostolic Church, that gets you to heaven. It's not going to be the United Pentecostal Church in the International gets you to heaven. It's going to be believing and obeying the book that gets you to heaven. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, there's nothing you've gone through or that you will be going through that has never happened to anybody else but you. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted, tested above that you're able But will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. God bless you. You may be seated. (laughs) I don't feel a heavy spirit on me. I'm not... uh, Not here to manipulate your emotions. In fact, manipulation of, the mo- of your emotions is absolutely the worst thing I could possibly do. Because manipulating emotions is just like being a piece of paper on a highway. An 18-wheeler comes by and the turbulence of their passing causes the paper to flutter up in the air. But as soon as the 18-wheeler is gone, the turbulence calms down. The paper goes right back to where it was. That's exactly what the situation is when your emotions get worked up. And, of course, unfortunately, in my beloved beloved church that I've been a part of 77 years and have been saved in for... uh, 66 years and I've been a minister in for 55 years 
we don't seem in many places to know the difference anymore between manipulating emotions and a move of God. Working somebody's emotions up is not a move of God. You can run in the spirit. You can run in the flesh because your emotions have been stirred up. The Lord accepts one. He rejects the other. You can run till your tongue's hanging out. But if the Holy Ghost is not moving you to do it, you just got a good aerobic workout at church, but that's it. You can dance all night. But if it's your emotions causing you to do it and not the Spirit of God, no. And this is, of course, one of the things that I'm very sure that our three pastors do not engage in. Not saying emotions don't get involved, but the Spirit goes first and the emotions follow. Excuse the very simplistic example. The move of the spirit is the engine of the train. The emotions reacting is the caboose. And, hey, <laughs> you, can, you can go online and watch guys, even guys that, quote, preach the truth. And they have learned how to turn the crank. Because that's become our favorite thing to do. We want somebody that's going to preach us to our feet. And there's a time for that. Not quite as frequently as we indulge in it. In fact, if you can preach people to, your, to their feet consistently, you can be invited to preach just about anywhere. Except Antioch. We would prefer people that preach you to your face than people that preach you to your feet. I, I knew of Brother McLeod. I was not able to be in the services last Sunday, uh, but I was in the camp. Um, and the man moved in the Holy Ghost. He preached the Word of God. And every session that I was in... Um, there was deep conviction. Huh. It's not quite enough to hear a pin drop, but it's high, quite enough to hear the AC working. <laughs> the first... Uh, First supernatural experience that I remember having. Uh, my dad was away fighting in Korea, serving with the Navy in Korea. And I was six, I think, at the time. And uh, my mother would occasionally let me, myself and my brother, I have a brother two and a half years younger than me. She would occasionally let us sleep in the bed with her. Because dad was gone. 
It was going almost a year. And this particular night, uh, we were attending the First Pentecostal Church in Pensacola, Florida, and um, and uh, the Pace Boulevard, which is the ch- the road the church is on. Obviously, at one point was a two-lane road, and the church was built well back from the road. But they widened this road, put in four lanes and a turn lane in the middle, and curb and guttering. So it ended up so that when you walked out of the front door of the church, you were less than 15 feet from the curb. And in this particular dream, I was not a part of the dream. I was an observer. I was... I don't, I don't know what, what I don't know if it was the platform or whatever it was, but I was in a position where I could look down, not down, but down on uh, the sidewalk, and every member of that church was on the sidewalk. And while they were standing there, Jesus came. I'm six years old, and. As a six-year-old, I went to church with all these people. It never crossed my mind as a six-year-old that there would be some who would not be saved. But in this dream, about half went and half did not. And when I woke up, I named the people to my mother who did not go. I told her the dream and named the people who never left the sidewalk. And I'm not God. I'm not God. But to the best of my knowledge, over the years, not one of those people passed from this life living in a saved condition. Well, that had a major impact on me, to say the least. Uh, From that moment to this day, making the rapture and going to heaven is my number one priority. Now, (laughs) that wasn't a kid thing. Because as I got older and began to study the Word of God and hear other people preach, that was uh, very powerful. In fact, uh, sometime around that time, I was, uh, my dad was in Korea and uh, we were in church and uh, they had some old wooden style theater seats. And so my brother being younger, he got the pallet, is what they call it laid a blanket or quilt on the floor, and he got to stretch out. Being the older brother, I had to sacrifice. So I was sleeping. Sometimes I'd sleep in church at 6, and I had to back my back into the seat, and the the one of the arms of the of the seats would catch me back here, and the other I would lay my head around like this. And I was laying there asleep, my head on my mother's lap, and I was awakened. And when I sat up, there was a lady preacher. That was before wireless microphones. She had a microphone with a wire. 
She was holding it in her good hand, and on this hand, she had a cast all the way up to about here. And she was walking back and forth across that platform, swinging that hand with that cast. And she was saying, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Well, I'm going to tell you what right now. That was my first personal experience that I could remember with the presence of God. I, I, you know, looking back on it now, I kind of understand it, but at the time, it never crossed my mind to pray for me. But I knew that my dad did not have the baptism of the Holy Ghost and he was fighting in the war. And so I prayed and prayed hard for him, for God to save him. In fact, I prayed so hard that when I kind of came to myself, my mother's skirt was absolutely soaked with the stuff that comes out of your eyes and nose because I prayed that hard. Uh, so my first experience of, uh, of having a, a, an experience with the Word of God that I remember, not that I'd never heard any preacher before that, but it, none of it ever affected me, I guess. It was three years after that before I began to seek for the Holy Ghost for myself. This is something we were here for decades before people knew because I don't believe in it. But I started going to the altar to receive the Holy Ghost at nine and didn't receive it till I was 12. And I, I, that's not biblical. And I have never preached that here. We never practiced that here. But I believe it's the will of God for you to get the Holy Ghost the first time you ask for it. And that's what happened to me. I received the Holy Ghost the first time I believed I would receive it. I went to the altar for three years, put in my time earning receiving the Holy Ghost. Didn't work. But the point coming back to this again is. <laughs> Somewhere along this line, I can't give you a date, but somewhere around the time I received the Holy Ghost, I believe the Lord communicated to me very strongly and has affirmed it many times over the years that I would live to see the rapture, that I would be alive when the rapture took place. You know, and you've got people, you know, uh, it's warm in here. How about a little AC? Uh, I didn't, I didn't say what I said to get the air turned off. Thank you for trying to interpret bishop speak, but that's not what that, that was not the message. So, <laughs> I have, uh, you know, there's always people that go, well, what if you don't live to the rapture? Well, then I just won't live to the rapture. But I'll be ready if I die. I wonder, I wonder, 
folks, if you wonder, you ever wonder why they preached and taught about the coming of the Lord 2,000 years ago? Because for you to make the rapture, you've got to die in faith that the rapture is going to happen and you can be a part of it. If you don't die believing there's going to be a rapture and you're going to be a part of it, you're not. You're not. Now... I'm, a real, I, I, I'm realizing there are a few folks here that's never heard much about this. Well, I would love to take the next six to ten hours, if you'd like, and teach you about that. But I don't expect to get any volunteers. So Paul wrote a message to us warning us To not think that we're standing when we're living in a way that potentially means we're going to fall. I mean, you read Matthew, it talks about the, the, the two in bed, one taking the other left, two in the field working, one taking the other left, two grinding at the mill, two, one taking the other left. I mean, that's pretty close association with someone. For one to go and the other not to go. I mean, none of those situations imply a relationship with a stranger. Obviously, two sleeping in the bed, that's pretty close. <laughs> and uh, two working in the field, that's not quite as intimate. Uh, two working at the mill, I guess there could be a... Uh, 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 a hired helper helping with a meal to prepare the breakfast, but usually that wasn't the case. It was usually the mother, the uh, older children, or whatever. But one taken, the other left. This is going to be a very personal thing. The problem is there's no second chance. If you do not Make the rapture. It's over. Oh, your life may not be over. But your eternity is sealed. And I don't have the time tonight to go into all the details of this, but uh, it, it, it would be a wonderful study if you were interested. To really... To really look at the things that could cause you to miss the rapture. And the, and the verses that I read to you, 1 Corinthians 10 verses 6 through 11, are itemizing some things that people who were saved fell into, which put them in such jeopardy, they never made it to the promised land. They were destroyed in the wilderness. And the, the typology of coming out of Egypt in the 40 years in the wilderness and going to the promised land, that can be applied, the principles of that can be applied on many different levels regarding to many different situations, and they're all, it's, it's all accurate. But this can especially be applied to coming out of 
sin, which is Egypt. And this life, this temporal life that we're living would be the wilderness. And the promised land would be heaven. The same supernatural act that got them out of Egypt by parting the Red Sea is the same supernatural act that parted the Jordan River to get them in the promised land. They got out of Egypt by supernatural act of God. They got out of the wilderness into the promised land by a supernatural act of God. And so these verses are easily applied in that context. In fact, they seem to be in this context being applied, especially since verse 11 says that these things happened unto them as in examples or examples. And the word, uh, the word in sample means, uh, an example, in a technical sense, the pattern of in conformity to which a thing must be made, in an ethical sense, a dissuasive example, a pattern of warning of ruinous events which serve as admonitions or warnings to others. That's literally what this word means in this context. These things that they were involved in were recorded to warn us. If we believe the word, if we take the word of God at face value, if we personalize the word as we're intended to, now, <laughs> the Bible talks about Jesus giving prophecy that there would be wars and rumors of wars and pestilences in diverse places and Famines and earthquakes and blah, blah, all that. He said, these things are the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrow there in the Greek means labor pains. The Lord is using the natural labor pains of a woman birthing a child to the, as the pattern for us to understand the events that are going to take place to produce this birth out of this world into the heavenly kingdom and those events are going to be labor pains. And of course, having experienced that with my wife three times, counting the first one as a miscarriage that she went through legitimate labor pains on and all of that, I, you know, made me very thankful I was a man. No offensive guys. No offense. I don't know one man alive. That could handle that. Whew. Man. So watching those happen. And of course, you know, they call it false labor. It was real pain. It might have not meant that she was just about to have the baby. Braxton Hicks, right? And that's what it's called, something like that. Oh, that's false labor. It's real pain. It's real pain. And while it may not happen immediately, the pain is real. 
And maybe those pains start and then stop because it really is not exactly time, but it's real pain. But then as the actual labor starts, it's not going to stop. They keep getting closer and closer together. And they get more and more intense until the birth takes place. And Jesus used that as his example to us. About how this is going to come down. The problem is with this, okay. (laughs) I am married to a lady that has a high pain tolerance. By the time I know she's in pain, who? In fact, with David, the doctor said, Mrs. Wright, the next time you have a child, you might want to come in a little earlier. You almost had this one on the steps. But that's just her, right? Now, I'm totally different than that. I'm going to ride every pain for max benefit. I want to be coddled, petted, pampered, babied. What does that mean? I'm a male. Ladies, if you hadn't figured that out yet, God help you. No, God help your husband. Because <laughs> it's really disappointed when you are riding that horse and it's not ever leaving the gate. <laughs> now, in all honesty, uh, with my challenges of the last year and a half or so, she has been phenomenal. Except for the fact that she thought that while I was flat on my back, she was in charge. And it was really hard to talk her out of being in charge after I was basically healthy again. But we, we're working on it. We're getting there. <laughs> I mean, I won't go there. So, <laughs> don't dismiss the labor pains. Well, we got all stirred up over that. Jesus didn't come. Yeah, I remember. You know, the Bible talked about Jerusalem was going to be the capital of Israel again. I mean, two years after I was born, for the first time in 1900 years, Israel lived in the promised land with their own nation. You talk about Phoenix, you talk about rising from the dead. Not only did they come back from the dead as a nation... But a language that was not used as the conversational language of business or uh, society, it was only used religiously, has been resurrected as, all, as well. Well, you know, a lot of people thought Jesus was coming then because he said the generation that sees these things begin to come to pass shall not pass away till they're all fulfilled. 1948. 
Well, I'm at the Naval Academy. It's the summer. It's the end of my third year, just about to start, you know, the summer training. And my summer training was supposed to be uh, in the Mediterranean. It was. Uh, I had orders to go to the CLG-3 Galveston for six weeks of summer training in the Mediterranean. And they had a they had a big thing planned for us. We were going to do exercise and whatever, but we were going into the major ports and the Mediterranean. How awesome was that? Except that in June, the uh, what turned out to be the Six Day War started, and in the Six Day War, Israel was recaptured for the first time. In almost 2,000 years to be the capital of this new founded, newly founded nation of Israel. Let me tell you what. Youth camps and camp meetings in June, July, and August filled up. Altars were filled. Everybody was sure that Jesus was coming any minute. And there were people who went and prayed back through. Backsliders galore. By the thousands and thousands prayed through. Because Jesus was coming. And then of course he didn't come right away. And uh, it didn't take them long to be the paper settling back down after the semi went by. Because he said, you see, he says, <laughs> there's going to be uh, uh, wars and rumors of wars and pestilences and, and earthquakes and famines and, di- earth, famines and, and, and uh, earthquakes in diverse places and whatever. But he also said that he would come in a day or an hour that they knew not. Now, how in the world? How is that possible? If all this stuff is happening, how could his coming take them unaware? Because it's not going to happen on the day when people are the most worked up. It's going to happen in between labor pains. When they assume, well, that was just another labor pain. And it's not time yet. That's why he said we need to be ready. We need to live ready. Uses military terminology, watch and pray. The word watch is to stand guard. Watch and pray. Well, why, why doesn't it work for us to get stirred up? Do you want somebody in heaven as your bride who's only there because they got stirred up for a few minutes? No. All of these things are warnings because the God of love and mercy and kindness, he is um, he's trying to get us a message. But if we're just being stirred by emotion, it's not going to work. You're not going to heaven without a commitment. A commitment that you live by the grace of God. You're not going in the rapture 
because you got stirred up in a service and somebody scared you and you prayed back through and talked in tongues for a while. Came to church for a few weeks and then things seemed to slack off. And so, well, I guess that's not the time. No, no. My poor wife, I don't know how she put up with it. I really don't. And I have a witness, my mother-in-law is here, of how bad I was. I wanted that baby to come now. I didn't want to wait anymore. So we had a little Volkswagen van. We got her in the van sitting on the front seat between us. We went and drove on rough roads. I know that's stupid. I look back on it and go, what is your problem? You're an idiot. What? What were you putting her through that for? And some old wives' tale was that if you if she took castor oil, castor oil, it would make the the. I'm supposed to be an engineer, but I'm desperate, so we're trying anything. And she went along with it because it was the easiest way to do it for her. Did it work? No, it didn't work. Nothing. I did to try to manipulate that baby coming worked. He came when I least expected it. <laughs> um, I think we need to go to the doctor. Seriously, not again. Yeah, yeah. This time I, I think this is real. Okay, couldn't we have done it in the middle of the day? Does it really have to be at 11 o'clock at night? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Joel was more cooperative. We went to the hospital at 8 o'clock in the morning. He was born at noon. Boy, that was really, that was easy. David was not. David was difficult. He wouldn't get here. And when he did, he came on his own terms. Yeah. And, uh. We, by the time we got out to the hospital at the Naval Academy, that's back when they had a clinic there, and he, David was birthed on the Naval Academy grounds. And by the time we got there, it was about midnight, and they they took her back, and my mother-in-law and I sat in the waiting room about about one o'clock in the morning. The doors open, and here comes my wife, and the nurse says she's not really too close. We're going to let her lay out here with you. We, we don't want to send her home. Too close. That, after it was all over, that, that's the doctor said, you, you need to be here quicker, right? So until about 6 o'clock in the morning, she laid on the couch with her head on my leg and slept. And they came out about 6. Mrs. Wright, come on back. Let's, we just want to check and see how you're doing. Well... 6.30, she wasn't back. 7, she wasn't back. 7.30, this nurse pokes her head out the door and says, Well, Mr. Wright, you got a boy. What? You let my wife lay in this waiting room with her head on my lap. She didn't just have it an hour and a half after you took her back, that means at some point between then and then, she had that baby and you... Well, I was so happy he was here. 
I didn't make a fuss over it, but I wasn't happy about it. You see, the number of warnings in the scripture are so vivid. How about this? Second Peter chapter three, verse one. And listen how, how much this applies to our day and even to some people that are in the church. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that you may be, excuse me, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before of the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. I don't believe all that stuff. Well, just guess, guess what you just confessed to? Walking after their own lusts. The scoffer is walking after lust. This isn't talking about the world. This is talking about people in the church. People in the church scoffing. And they're scoffing because they don't want him to come because they're enjoying their flesh to whatever degree that's possible living with your guilt. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. We've heard this stuff for years. Ain't nothing going to happen. We're just, we're just going to keep on having church and living our lives. And Verse 5, for this they willingly are ignorant of. You know, this isn't, for this they are willingly stupid. Stupid we use wrongly because it's, tech, it's a technical term that speaks of the lack of capability of understanding. Ignorance, the root word of ignorance is to ignore. You have the capability of understanding. You don't choose to. For this they are, they willingly are ignorant enough. In other words, the opportunity is there and has been there for them not to be ignorant. But they chose to ignore what was right in front of them, what was presented to them, what they could see. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. (laughs) Well, guess what? From... For most people in the world and a lot of people in the church, the flood and the ark and all that is just as much a fairy story as the coming of Jesus. They don't believe one is any more literally true than the other because they are willingly ignorant. My dad did not get saved until the last day of December of 1979. Over in Eastport. At that time he would have been 56, almost 57. 
But he told me, he said, uh, my last, my first two years of high school, sophomore, junior years, he was a part of a squadron, VX-6, Air Development Squadron 6, out of Quonset Point, Rhode Island, uh, that flew, <laughs> talk about politics, why would you take a squadron that's flying back and forth to Antarctica off the, from the West Coast and station them in Rhode Island? Money. P- politicians pulling rank to get these squadrons in their area for the economy of their area. Now, it doesn't make sense, but that's what they do, see. So he would fly to Antarctica during our fall, winter, and into spring, seven, I think it was seven to eight months at a time, uh, from Rhode Island to Antarctica, two years, because he was in charge of the photo mapping of uh, the continent of Antarctica. This is 1960, 60, he was there 60, 61, and then 61, 62. And um, he told me, this is my dad. He believed the Bible. He read the Bible, but he didn't want to get saved because he knew if he got saved, he'd have to preach. When he did get saved, he immediately started preaching because he'd been waiting 30 years plus. But anyway, he told me, he said, son, I was on a, uh, I was on an airplane. Of course, they all had, uh, skis on them. So they, they flew out to a particular area and, and it, and it, uh, um, landed and he didn't have anything he had to do right at that moment he was in charge of the whole thing but his people that worked with him they had it all together and so he left them to do that and there was a mountain he said it was probably about a thousand fifteen hundred feet from where the plane was uh, to the top of it there was no trees obviously nothing like that and uh, he had the time and he thought i i'm just going to walk up there and so he did the elevation of that mountain was probably around 5,000 feet from uh, the surface of the earth. And he said, I was up there. He said, I just had this thought. If there had been a flood that covered the earth, it's very likely that no human being in history has ever stood on this mountain. That means none of this has been disturbed since the flood. He said, I decided to turn over some stones because if there had been a flood, there would be salt deposits on the bottom of those stones because the whole world was flooded. And he said, son, every stone I turned over had white salt deposits. On the bottom of them. Now that wasn't from a person who was actively living for God or preaching the word. For this they are willingly ignorant of. The world was destroyed by a flood one time. Part of it is for our example today. That's why we know about it today. Because it's our example in other words, what, what did the scripture say the reason for the flood was? It reached the place that the thoughts of their hearts were only evil continually. 
He could only find eight people who would believe him. You say, well, that's not fair. No. What fair, what's fair is for the 120 or so years that Noah was pre- building the ark, Peter says that he was a preacher of righteousness. He had a word from God. There's going to be a flood. God said, build this ark. A hundred and twenty years, he preached there was going to be a flood. The implication is, anybody that believed could get on the ark with him. Everybody destroyed in the flood did so because they refused to believe the word. (laughs) You talk about, well, where are the signs that God would... Show us. The only sign the world had was an old man and his three sons building a boat not anywhere near any water. Can you imagine how much of a lunatic he appeared to be? Hebrews eleven seven, please. Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his household. He wasn't moved. His emotions weren't moved. This, this fear is the fear of God. And it's in our spirits. It's not an emotional fear. You can't sustain emotional fear for 120 years. You can't do it. This was the fear of God that was produced by his faith in what God said. Well, you know, without getting ridiculous about this, they still had to live. And the way they had to live, they had to grow their own animals that they would use and those that they would eat and they had to grow their own vegetables and fruit and all that. They had work to do other than build the ark. They had to live. Now, the Bible doesn't say specifically that Noah was commanded to bring anything into the ark to eat. But the implication is there. He had to feed the animals. God didn't put them all into a semi-comatose state until the, the, he was ready to reopen the ark door. So they still had to live their natural life while they were preparing spiritually. (laughs) Oh my. I love my sons and my daughters. I love their children. We got at least one grandchild, great-grandchild on the way. It would be awesome to see all seven of them get married and have kids if I could live that long, I guess. But I've had to make peace with the fact that when those two were working in the field, 
they were probably not old people at the end of their lives. And the two that were in the bed were probably not old people at the end of their lives. And the two that were grinding at the mill were probably not old people at the end of their lives. I mean, the rapture may actually take place on the night before somebody's wedding. The rapture may actually take place with somebody just days away from birthing their first child. That's not fair. Well, you just proved what your faith is. My wife and I have never discussed in advance what I was going to be preaching. What did she start with tonight? Anybody remember what the first song was? This world is not my home. Isn't that that what she sang? Didn't she sing that? Right? First song. How did she know to sing that song? We never talked about what I was going to what I felt led to minister tonight, ever. We never did that. And, of course, service after service after service, she was on the money. Why? Because praise and worship is our John the Baptist. He's supposed to prepare the way for the word. And any praise and worship that does not prepare the way for the word, it's not worship. I don't care how awesome the singing and playing is. I don't care how professionally it's done, how well it's sung and played. If it doesn't prepare the way for the word, it's not worship. It's entertainment. Right. Secret. I'll tell you a secret. That's not the last time you or anybody else is going to hear that. It's easy. I, I have the Holy Ghost, and I, and God has granted me grace to be sensitive to the Spirit. But you don't have to be greatly sensitive to the Spirit to know whether or not what's taking place is a performance or if it's worship. All I have to do is sit there and watch. And if you're all staring at the singers... And you're not participating with them. It's performance. If it's worship, you're participating with them. Not some of the time. Not most of the time. 100% of the time. If the purpose of singing and playing is to lead us into the presence of God. Come into his presence with singing, into his courts with praise. If that's not taking place, then it's not worship or praise. It is performance. Because if it's of God and anointed of God, people are being led into his presence. And the first people that will respond are those with the Holy Ghost that are prayed up, walking with God. They're going to feel that initial moving of the Spirit with that. You may not be able to see it, but you'll know it's there. And then they'll begin to respond to that. I'm not talking about necessarily jumping up and down and running around. But they will begin to enter into that worship, that praise. Why is that important? 
Oh, praise God. Some of us that have the Holy Ghost have taught ourselves to not respond. Nobody going to manipulate me. Okay. What do you think the rapture is going to be? It's going to be a move of God's spirit. And if you have taught yourself to not respond, you're not going. Because you know what? It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing when praise and worship is going on. I want to always practice responding to God. And again, I'm not saying that response is necessarily getting up, jumping up and down, dancing all night, running around all the place. But responding is an entering into that. A responding, it's responding to that. It's, it's yielding to that. So every time the Spirit of the Lord moves, it's practice. It's practice practice for the rapture. Every time. So that's why if you don't come to church prayed up and you're sitting here with guilt and shame and condemnation and the Holy Ghost is moving and you're not responding, you're teaching yourself to not respond. To the Holy Ghost. So, you may think coming to church and coming to church and there being singing and worship. Why do we usually start with singing and praise? Because the word says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Singing, singing, uh, singing brings us into the presence of God. Why? Because when we're all singing the same words, and if we get in tune with the Spirit, then we're coming together in unity. It's the first step of unity for that service. And for God to do what he wants to do in that service, there needs to be unity. So when we're all singing, that's the first step of unity. We're all singing the same song. That may not be in its, in and of itself unity, but it's the first step of unity. Because we, in our singing, we enter into the presence of God. And it's preparation most of the time for your spirit to be able to receive the word of God. It is very difficult for the unresponsive. And again, I'm not talking about responsive being necessarily jumping up, down, running around, whatever. Because if that was what I have to do to be responsive right now, I'm not going to heaven. Because I'm not physically able to do that. There had to be somebody see me trying to get that bottle cap off the floor this morning. That wasn't put on. That was a long, I dropped that bottle of cap and I went. 
That's a long way down there. <sighs> okay. Am I just going to kick it underneath the pulpit or am I going to try to get it? Well, they're receiving the offering, so I'll try to get it. Are you ready? Oh, no, not really, but let's go. Gave us. All right. Oh, that's a long way down there. Okay. And I got down there and I, and I couldn't get far enough down to grab it. So I was trying to get it between these fingers. It wouldn't cooperate. So I had to stay down there because I was too stubborn to stand up without it. And not only that, once I was already down there, I didn't want to get up and go back down there. And I wish I was kidding. And it's fine for you to laugh because I'm saying it, making fun of myself, but it's not really funny. You know, I've been athletic, been involved in athletics all my life and played with a church softball team that we used to have till I was 56. And I didn't quit then because I couldn't play. It was just time for younger people to be able to play. So I do that. In 80, in 21, when I was traveling across the country, I averaged probably three to four days a week, at least every week, of walking between 10 and 15,000 steps. That's just about as healthy as I've been in a long time. And then I spent almost all of 22 flat on my back. And guess what? You just don't come back from that without doing it on purpose. I haven't talked myself into that yet. But, (laughs) oh, Lord, I need to get stop complaining and get back to whatever the Lord was trying to say before I got myself distracted. Plans are a great thing. Dreams, ambitions. All those things are fine. But when you're so married, figuratively speaking, your dreams and your agenda, your ambition, that you can't also prepare and keep yourself prepared for the coming of the Lord. It's not worth the price. There are going to be some people that are going to spend hours, days, weeks, months, years preparing to do something. You will have spent a lot of money and time preparing. And just about the time you get to do that, the Lord's going to come. Are you going to say, no, 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 hold off a while. I'm not done yet. Really? Well, it's not fair. You get the, you gotten to live all your life. <laughs> Let me tell you what's not fair. I've lived my whole life to be a part of end time worldwide apostolic revival and harvest. You don't put old men on the front lines. I'm not going to be the guy walking through the streets praying for people and them getting healed. It's not in the Bible except in principle. Old men are for counsel, young men are for war. In this end time harvest, 
It's going to be the young that he's going to use mightily. And it's going to be the responsibility of the old to help them stay saved while they're being used so that we can all go to heaven together. You, you young people, the ones that are being given the opportunity with your energy and strength and youth to be the ones on the front line seeing the miracles happen. If that's valuable to you, then awesome. If it's not valuable to you, God have mercy on you. God have mercy on you. So we'll go back to uh, Second Peter 3. I forget which verse we were at. Just pick one and we'll go from there. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Next verse. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store or kept in reserve. Reserved against fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years at one day. Listen now. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. It means he's not unfaithful with his word. He's not... Refusing to do what he said he would do. Well, what, what is it that, why is, has the Lord not come yet? The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some men count slackness. But his long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now listen to this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens and shall pass away with a great noise. The elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? But the scripture says, that there are those servants that say, my Lord delayeth his coming. And they gave themselves to riotous living. And when he came, caught them off guard. Because when they determined he wasn't coming right when they thought he was going to, they had time to sin, they thought, and get right. Next verse. Looking for, I'm going to read 11 again to go with 12. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting, hurrying unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Verse 13. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Next verse. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found, may be found of him in peace, 
without spot and blameless, an account. The word account there in the Greek means to do calculations based on facts and come to this conclusion, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So you say, well, the Lord hadn't come. Preacher, it's just trying to scare us. That's not the point. You're missing the point. The point is, every moment the Lord doesn't come, every day he doesn't come, is an opportunity for somebody else to be saved. The sad thing is, for some that would have been saved if he'd have come a week ago, have determined that since he hasn't come, they've got time to do their own thing, live their own way. Isn't it amazing? The love of God is delaying absolutely as long as he can to give every person an opportunity to be saved. And and some of the ones that are already saved are going to get end up lost because of that delay. Because it's going to reveal what's really in their heart. They're in this to be saved, not to know Jesus. Because if you've take, if you if you're taking this time to know Jesus, then you being saved is is a done deal. So let's go down to what what verse was that? I'll just keep reading. It's only a couple more verses. And also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of things. These things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist, as they do also the other scriptures under their own destruction. Listen now. Ye therefore, beloved, this is the next to last verse of the last writing of the Apostle Peter. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, Beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. I'm going to paraphrase. Don't let the delay cause you to end up lost and going to hell forever. Well, what's the only antidote to that? What's the only guarantee that that won't happen? Next verse. But grow in grace. Don't end up in error. But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So what are we doing? Growing in Jesus. Growing in Jesus, doing his will, reaping every soul that can be reaped in these last few hours, days, weeks, months, years, which I can't imagine. 
he said, uh, he essentially promised three score and ten, except by reason of strength, four score, which is 80 years. If that's the age of a generation, and he said, this generation would not pass away till all these things are fulfilled, then 20, 28 will be 80 years. The generation that sees these things begin to come to pass shall not pass away till all things are fulfilled. Well, we've got five more years. That's exactly what gets you in trouble. Am I predicting that Jesus is going to come by 2028? I never said that. I'm just quoting your scriptures. Bottom line, there's a whole lot of people, which is a ridiculous understatement, in this world that do not personally know the Lord Jesus Christ, that have never come to a place of faith, never to a place of repentance and obedience to the word of God, They've not obeyed the gospel, the plan of salvation. And, of course, we're living in a world that fancies itself inclusive. Well, the Lord told us to love everybody. But he's the one that said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. When he was asked, what does that mean? He says, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There's nothing inclusive about that. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse six, please. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the holy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Acacia. Up, I'm sorry, Second Thessalonians one six. Let's try that one. Good stuff, just not where I was wanting to go <laughs> or felt to go. Uh, verse five. How about four? How about Genesis 1 1? <laughs> so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Let's be honest. We haven't, we're not there. Headed that direction. Next verse. Which is a manifest token of the, of the righteous judgment of God. That ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God 
and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, Brother Wright, that's, that's pretty harsh just because somebody, well, you didn't, you didn't listen to the, to the context. He's taking vengeance on those who not only did not obey God, but persecuted and afflicted those that did. It's one thing to just choose not to obey God yourself. But he's promised judgment on those who persecute and afflict his people. We won't be praying for that. We won't be asking God to do that. He said in advance he's going to do it. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <clears throat> we, we, don't, we don't want people to be judged like that. No, the problem is they will be so convicted and angered by just your lifestyle, just your faith. Even if you're not getting in their face telling them X, Y, Z, that they're going to persecute and afflict us. And God has promised that's coming, but they're not going to get away with it. Because when it's finished, I'm taking you out of here. You're going to rest with us while he takes vengeance on those that remain who treated you like this. I don't want that because it's not, they're not taking vengeance. He's not taking vengeance on my account. He would only be taking vengeance on his account because those that would not allow him to save them couldn't just leave it alone between them and him. They had to punish those who would dare do what they won't do. Well, here's the sad part. And it's uh, not real late, but it's this is winding down. So I'm not going to get into the scripture. You're welcome to read it. There's a couple of places to read it. You can read it in Matthew 10, Matthew 24. Uh, Luke 17, Luke 21, Mark, there's several places. But the, uh, <sighs> the Lord said that during this time of tribulation or persecution and affliction, that there would be some among us who in order to spare themselves from being victims of this persecution and affliction are going to betray those that they go to church with as proof to those that are doing the persecuting that they're not really like us. And I'm not trying to sit here and produce distrust. I'm just simply saying that there are some of us sitting here when push comes to shove, whatever that means. Some of us will choose to preserve our skin here rather than save our souls there. Because we will so be given to here and now 
and avoiding whatever pain and discomfort we might be subject to here that we won't even consider the eternal punishment that's waiting back in the 1500s and 1600s and in very some I don't know the exact dates but it was back in there the uh, Catholic Church uh, went through a time of purging they called it the Great Inquisition and there were people who believed in God who were not following Catholic doctrine this is history I'm not talking against anybody I'm just telling you what history says and so they would bring people in to a torture chamber to torture them to get them to recant of their faith and become good Catholics again. One of their favorite devices was called the rack. It was a table that they laid you on and they stretched your arms and, and feet out and they would put ropes around your wrists and around your ankles. Those ropes would come underneath the table and be attached to a spindle uh, a device where you could turn it and it would crank the attention and they would tell the person recant and if they didn't recant they would tighten the pressure on their arms and legs therefore on their joints and uh, believe it or not you can die from that you can die from that this one particular situation according to Fox's Book of Martyrs which is an old book if you haven't read it, you might not want to, uh, because it is, whew, it's, uh, it's not bedtime reading. But it's a history of martyrdom through the years of the church. And this one particular event uh, during the great, the, the great Inquisition, there was a man, and in the book, the book I think says his name, I don't. I don't remember what that was. It's been a long time since I read it. He was on the rack. And he was in such pain. And they told him recant. He said no. He cranked it a little more. Recant no. Cranked it a little more. Finally. Finally said, I recant. I recant. Because he was just, he was screaming in pain. And they loosened it. Took the ropes off his ankles and his wrists. And he slowly got up from the table and started to walk toward the door because they told him he was free to go. And a f 15 or so feet, whatever it was, from the rack, he fell down screaming in agony beyond any he had experienced on the rack and died. And according to the story, there was a 16-year-old girl that somehow was in the room and she was off in a one of the corners just observing quietly and she said out loud oh thou fool you have traded a few moments of relief here for an eternity of torment they heard her say it they turned to her and said are you one of them she said yes and they didn't wait for the rack a soldier was commanded just to take his sword and end her life right there that's hard. She was 16. She had her whole life ahead of her. Oh, better than that. She got her whole eternity ahead of her. Trust me. <laughs> you may think I'm old. But 77 years 
is so fast, it is mind-boggling. I'm telling you right now, it is fast. And some of you sitting around in here that are 60, you think you're old? You don't know what old is. I could still do a lot of stuff at 60 I can't do now. (laughs) But it's fast. That's why James says this life is just a vapor. It's just a vapor. And I'm going to trade unending eternity in the presence of God for anything in a vapor. There is there anything in a vapor? <laughs> anything. That's worth trading an eternity for. We were at camp and those of you at camp knew that Monday was really hot. And then that weather came in and people were freezing. It was cold. <laughs> and it was raining and all that. So we went out to the Jeep to to uh, go someplace. And the car was on and I was doing something. She said, it's smoking. I haven't seen it smoke like that. I got out and looked and I said, the hot air from the engine coming out of the exhaust is hitting this cold air, creating condensation. That's called clouds. Vapor. There's no substance to that. There's no substance to vapor. No substance to vapor. Is there anything in this vapor that you would trade your eternity for? Anything. That's why... I just don't get people that have grudges that won't forgive. It is worth costing you eternity to hold a grudge against anybody, including God, for anything. That, excuse me, I'm going to use the word. That's the height of stupidity. That's absurd. (laughs) Let me tell you what right now. I think my wife said it this morning. You know, I'm not going to let anybody say or do something to me is going to cause me to, well, I'm not going back because they didn't treat me good. I don't go there for them. I love you, but I don't come here for you. I'm not in the church for you. I'm in the church for Jesus and me. And there's nothing anybody can do to cause me to leave him. I'm not doing it. It's not happening. Why? <laughs> you know why we don't forgive? Because on some level we know God too good. We know we know if he if we forgive them, he's probably going to forgive them, and we don't want them forgiven. We want them to suffer, so we choose to not forgive, and we end up suffering. It's the old saying of uh, having a grudge is like. Drinking poison and expecting a person you got a grudge against to die from you drinking poison. Is there anything in this vapor that you're willing to trade your eternity with Jesus for? If you, if there is, then you don't know Jesus. You don't know Jesus. 
Well, you know, the people in that church didn't treat me good. They're supposed to be Christians. Yeah, that's exactly the right. But show me in the book where being a Christian makes you perfect. You know, <laughs> I remember the first time I saw my hands look like this. And I went, wait a minute. I remember when my dad's hands looked like that. And he was old. Sometimes I I just, my hands catch my attention. I go, man, how did I get there? How did I get there? You know, I got all these crinkles and wrinkles. and How did it get there? Getting up every morning for 77 years, that'll do that to you. I mean, don't get too enamored with your smooth face in the mirror. It ain't long for the world. You just keep getting up every morning, and it's going the way of all flesh. It's not going to be there. <laughs> this, is, this is not a joke. I graduated high school at 181 pounds. I graduated the Naval Academy at 181 pounds. I got married six months after graduation. And one month later, I weighed 196 pounds because of the cooking. That's her fault. And I haven't been under 200 pounds again for 55 years. Well, 55 years this December. I'm so happy love is blind. I wouldn't have a chance. So what are you going to do about this? Now, here's here's the deal, okay? We're not all worked up. There's nobody boo-hooing. Not anybody running in terror to the altar, screaming and crying, get right with God. Not saying that shouldn't be happening, but it's not. And I have purposely, purposely done this as unemotional as possible. Oh, there's been conviction from the Spirit in the room, but not emotion. Because you ever get that sound on your phone? Ah, this is a test of the emergency broadcasting system. This is a test. For you that have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. This is a test. Are you going to dismiss this because you don't want to hear it? You're going to just go do your thing, live your life? Or are you going to say, here I am, Lord. I cannot save myself. I cannot save myself. I'm trusting you to save me. And by your grace, I give myself to you to do your will. Whatever that is, wherever that is. Whatever the price is, the price is. Because you see, here's the thing. Regardless of what your age is right now, 
we're, we've all got exactly the same amount of time between now and the rapture. If you're 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, none of that matters at all. Because we've all got exactly the same amount of time between here and the rapture. I'm going to uh, read to you what I couldn't find this morning. It'll take me about five minutes, but the Lord gave this to me the other day. I haven't posted it yet, but it's coming. Maybe tomorrow. The title of this is Lord gave me this on the 19th, which would have been six days ago. The title of this is The Haunting Ghosts of Lost Days. Any day that ends without having had any real intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and that is lacking anything productive having been done for the kingdom of God is a lost day. A lost day's minutes are mostly spent on temporal things which have no eternal returns rather than investing its minutes in eternal things which have great rewards. One can be redeemed from the sin of not redeeming the time of a lost day. But the lost time of a lost day will never be redeemed. It's lost forever. To the wise, the ghosts of lost days will haunt them and should produce in them a greater resolve to not live any more lost days. Again, lost souls can be saved. Lost time cannot be. All of the opportunities for growing in grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on that lost day are gone. If we're not going forward spiritually, then we're going backward. If we're not growing spiritually, then we're dying. Most lost days occur during times that we call days of rest that are actually most often days of leisure. There's a difference between leisure and rest. Again, most lost days are a product of product and a result of leisure. On the surface, days of leisure and days of rest may appear to be the same thing, but they are diametrically opposite one from the other. The activities or lack of activities on days of leisure versus days of rest may not appear to be significantly different. It is who that is in charge of those days. And what the motive is behind that day. That is the biggest difference between a day of leisure and a day of rest. The priorities of leisure are things of the flesh and world. The priorities of rest are things of the spirit. God gives us rest. Our flesh takes its leisure. Rest recreates. It regenerates. Its activities are recreational. Because they're refreshing to both the body and the mind. One very critical element of rest is casting our cares and trusting our Father. It is truly impossible to rest on any day that my anxiety and or fear prevails. To truly rest, I must commit all of these things to the Lord. Trusting His love. 
Because his love casts out fear. Because fear has torment. Leisure entertains. It is an effort to get lost in activities that allows one to avoid considering their problems. True days of rest allow God to be in control, trusting him that he knows what is best for us and how to refresh us. False days of rest are actually days of leisure. God is not in control of these at all. In fact, consciously or subconsciously, in days of leisure, one seeks to avoid God and his expectations for us. The fulfilled potential of rest produces eternal results. The unfulfilled potential of days of leisure have eternal consequences. One can never get back the opportunities that are lost on days of leisure. What is a day of rest over? When a day of rest is over, there's peace. When a day of leisure is over, there's a sense of loss and regret. We want the fragrance of rest to linger in our minds and spirits going forward. Yet we would prefer that the haunting regrets of the ghosts of lost days would leave us alone. But they do not. Every day is a day. And every dollar is a dollar. When we are young and our quote unquote bank account seems to be overflowing with days and dollars. Does not seem to matter much to us that we waste a day or here or a dollar there. But when you're much older... When there are fewer days and dollars in the account, wasting even one of them feels like a tragic loss. Yet the days of the young, the days of the old are exactly the same day. It's just a matter of perspective. If your perspective is looking into an undefined future, then it is hard to give the proper value to that day or the dollar. But if your perspective is looking at the many past days, then the value of those days and dollars is incalculable. An objective look at our past usages of our days and dollars revealed the tragedy of misusing either of them. The young should seriously consider the costly gains in the wisdom and experience of the old. However, they rarely do. Why? They are terrified that if they get a glimpse of themselves in a few more years, it will change the way they live here and now. Most of the young would rather live under the delusion of a limitless supply of days and dollars in the future. No such supply has ever existed. Why? Our life is just a vapor. I wrote that down as I heard it. That's my altar call. You can sit there and pray. You can come find a place to pray. Or you're welcome to go home as you would choose. God bless you.